Today we have the privilege of looking to the book of Genesis. But I think it is a fair question to ask, why are we coming here to study the book of Genesis? Why would we spend all of this time diving into this book of 50 chapters, this book at the very beginning of your Bible? And so before we we jump into all the details of the book of Genesis, I want to give uh, three reasons why we should be studying this book. And this will kind of set us up for the reasons, excuse me, for the weeks to come as we dive into this book. The first reason is that you need Genesis to understand the story of the Bible. You need Genesis to understand the story of the Bible of the Bible. When I was a kid, I thought the Bible was just a a bunch of disconnected different stories. Adam and Eve did something bad, and then there was Father Abraham, who had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham, and that whole song, which I had no idea what any of that meant. And then Moses called down some awesome plagues in Egypt. God gave a lot of weird laws in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Joshua was brave and walls came tumbling down and the bad guys lost girls should be like ruth and esther david was an awesome fighter who beat goliath and guys should be like david david and solomon wrote a a bunch of flowery poems that I, i saw in a lot of coffee mugs prophets condemned everybody except the prophet Isaiah, who said some good stuff about Jesus. Then Jesus showed up in the New Testament, did miracles, said some parables, died, rose again. His followers then did some stuff. Then his followers wrote some technical letters about theology I didn't understand. And then the scary book that everybody argues about happened at the end. That was my view of the Bible growing up. I didn't know how all of it fit together. But although the Bible contains a lot of different stories, there is one overarching story that connects it all, that unifies the whole Bible. And without the book of Genesis, you will not understand that story. Imagine reading the Lord of the Rings trilogy, but deciding you were going to skip the, the first book and just jumping straight into the two towers, you'd probably end up very, very confused about why everybody was sad about this wizard fellow and why everybody is so upset about this ring and why are there two midgets carrying this special thing to get it destroyed and not the awesome fighters of the fellowship. You'd be very confused because you missed the beginning. And Genesis is the beginning of the story of the Bible. It sets the foundation for the 65 books that follow. The story of the Bible starts with the creator God who makes everything. And who makes everything good and who puts mankind in a perfect garden paradise. It then moves to a a serpent leading the man to rebel against their God, disobeying God's word, and thus the whole world becoming infected with sin. But instead of the story ending right there, which would be a pretty lame ending to the story, God makes a promise 
in Genesis chapter 3. God promises the first woman that one of her offspring will crush the head of the serpent, that the evil enemy of God and of man will be defeated. A deliverer is going to come, and he will have victory over evil. And the rest of the story of the Bible is about God preparing and bringing the serpent crusher into the world so that those who, who turn to God can be delivered from evil and so that God can receive all the glory as he establishes his perfect kingdom all across the universe. And we see God's promise of this deliverer moving forward as God gives Eve children, as he preserves Noah on the ark through the flood, as he chooses a man named Abraham to bring blessing onto all the peoples across the earth. God said to Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 3, that in him all the families of the earth will be blessed. In other words, it is going to be through Abraham's family line that the deliverer, that the serpent crusher is going to come. And God shows his faithfulness in keeping his promise as God miraculously gives Abraham a son and protects Abraham's descendants throughout the book of Genesis. God guides and protects Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob's children, giving Abraham victory in battle, delivering Isaac from death, protecting Jacob from his brother's revenge, and preserving Jacob in the, Jacob in the midst of a worldwide famine. God continued to guide and protect this family as they grew and as they flourished, getting them ready to become a nation that would prepare the world for the promised deliverer and getting them ready to become a nation that would produce the deliverer, the serpent crusher who would defeat the evil one and bring victory to God and his people. That's the story of Genesis. And that is the storyline of the Bible. And if you understand that beginning, then the rest of the story of Scripture will open up to you. You understand why God gives all of those strange sacrificial laws. Sacrifices that, that point to the ultimate sacrifice that is needed to defeat sin and death. The ultimate sacrifice that could only be accomplished by God's promised deliverer. You understand why the Bible records a long list of evil kings in Israel. A list of failed monarchs that point to the need for there to be a perfect ruler. A king who will bring justice to the earth. A leader like the promised deliverer in Genesis chapter 3. You understand why the prophets keep talking about a Messiah, about a Christ, a promised deliverer who will come to save God's people. 
You understand why the sins of humanity are so clearly laid bare in the Old Testament as it is made obvious that mankind cannot solve their problem on their own, that they need someone else to, to solve the issues of sin and death, that we need a deliverer. And then... As we move into the pages of the New Testament, you'll see how the promised deliverer, the serpent crusher, the one who will bring blessing to all the families of the earth, that person has come into the world in the person of Jesus Christ. And then Jesus' sacrificial death for our sins and his resurrection from the dead will make sense to us. It will make sense. Because it is God fulfilling his promise to send the deliverer to crush the evil one and give victory to his followers. We'll understand that the letters of the New Testament are the in-depth theological explanations for how God defeated sin and death through the life, death, and resurrection of the promised serpent crusher. And how they give the implications of how we should live now that the serpent has begun to be destroyed. And Revelation, instead of just being a scary book that everybody argues about, will be shown to be the deliverer, bringing the final destruction upon the evil serpent, bringing his people into perfect blessing, bringing his people back into the garden paradise and bringing complete victory and glory to God. That is an awesome story. And that story makes no sense without the book of Genesis. So if you want to fully understand and be amazed by the storyline of Scripture, then we have to go back to the first book of the Bible. But not only is Genesis necessary for understanding the storyline of the Bible, but you also need Genesis to understand the life-transforming doctrines of the Bible. You need Genesis to understand the life-transforming doctrines of the Bible. Now, there are many we could choose from, and I just picked a selection here so we won't go through everything, but almost every doctrine starts in the book of Genesis. You obviously have the big one, creation. How did we get here? Where are we going? Where did we come from? Why are we here? Who made us and who gets to make the rules? Well, we know from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, that everything was made by God. Therefore, he is the ruler. Therefore, he is the one who gets to make the laws. He is the authority. We also get to see the doctrine of God's goodness. As we see in Genesis chapter 1, that everything was made good. And that God is the creator, and then therefore he's the one who gets to define what true goodness is. We also see the doctrine of sex and marriage. We see that the creator, being the creator, gets to define what sex and marriage is. 
There are only two sexes, two genders, male and female, that we see in Genesis 1.27. And we see that marriage is a, is a permanent union between one man and one woman, all the way back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, which says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. You look to the New Testament, and in Matthew 19, Jesus takes this text and he uses it at the, as the blueprint for all marriages. He says, this is what you should go back to. This is what defines a true marriage. And you see in the rest of Genesis, the destruction and the pain and the sorrow that occurs when this Blueprint for marriage is ignored. As Genesis shows us adultery, polygamy, premarital sex, prostitution, homosexuality, incest, and rape, it shows us all those things, and it shows us how evil they are, and we see the, the terribleness of that by going back to the first two chapters of Genesis, recognizing that God made things a certain way. And when we go away from that pathway, we end up in hardship and destruction. On that topic of destruction, we see God's doctrine of sin and judgment made clear in the book of Genesis. Obviously, Adam and Eve's sin in the first couple chapters and God's judgment of them show us that sin is a big deal as it affects all of mankind. And we see how pervasive and intense sin is as we get to Genesis 6, verse 5, where it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Sin is serious. And because of the seriousness of sin... God brings about judgment on the earth as he has a worldwide flood that wipes out almost every single person on the planet. God's extreme hatred for sin is also seen in his destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18 and Genesis 19. And Sodom and Gomorrah are used as an example of the seriousness of sin and the intenseness of God's judgment all throughout the Bible. In fact, Sodom and Gomorrah and God's judgment of them is mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter 29, in chapter 32, in Isaiah chapter 1 and chapter 3 and chapter 13, in Jeremiah 23 and 20, excuse me, 49 and 50, in Lamentations 4, in Ezekiel 16, in Amos 4, in Matthew 10, in Matthew 11, in Luke 10, in Luke 17, in Romans 9, in 2 Peter 2, in Jude 1, and in Revelation 11. And if you want to understand all of those references, you have to go back to Genesis. If you want to understand sin and judgment, we go back to the first book of the Bible. But not only do we understand sin and judgment from Genesis, but the foundation for God's grace and God's mercy start in Genesis. Very often people take the Bible and they say, Old Testament, all about doing 
good and God's judgment, New Testament, we get grace. But that's not what we see in the Bible. We see God's grace and God's mercy displayed from the very first pages in Scripture. As we see God's promise of a man in in Genesis 3 who would come to crush the enemy of mankind. We see God allowing Adam and Eve to live and, and, and clothing them, covering them even though they had exposed themselves with sin. We see God's mercy to Cain, not executing him right away after his sin of murder. We see God preserving Noah and his family through the flood. And we see God not bringing judgment down on Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah, even though all those people I just mentioned had all kinds of sin. God's grace and God's mercy start at the very beginning. And connected with that, we see the doctrine of salvation through faith alone. Salvation through faith alone. That's not a doctrine that was invented by Martin Luther in the Reformation. And it's actually not a doctrine that the Apostle Paul just came up with. In fact, if you look in Romans chapter 4 or Galatians chapter 3, you'll see Paul making the case that being saved through faith alone, being declared righteous by trusting in God and his promises is something that is seen all the way back in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, it says that Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And Paul uses that verse to show that Abraham was justified, declared righteous by God, not because of what he did, not because of his good deeds, but because of his faith, because he believed God and God's promises. Salvation by faith alone starts in the first book of the Bible. We also see God's supreme power and sovereignty. Obviously, in Genesis chapter 1, we see God's power as he creates the entire universe out of nothing. And that awesome power and sovereignty is seen in God's ability to flood the entire world. In his ability to confuse all of the languages of the world. To rain down fire and destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. To be able to perfectly predict the future and to use all the evil things that happened to Joseph to bring about great good. God is all-powerful, and he is in complete control of every little tiny thing that has ever occurred and will ever occur, and that sovereignty and that power is displayed in the book of Genesis It is the foundation for understanding who God is and what he has done. So you want to understand the doctrines of the Bible. You want to be transformed fully and understand fully what God has done throughout Scripture. We need to go back to the book of Genesis. And finally, number three. You need Genesis to understand the God-centeredness of the Bible. 
You need Genesis to understand the God-centeredness of the Bible. God's plan in the Bible is not all about you. So very often when we come to Scripture, we can come with it with a, with an, a, a prideful mentality. We come looking to find us. We come looking to see how, how, how everything can be relevant to us. We come with the wrong starting point, thinking that the Bible begins with us, when in fact the Bible makes clear that the main character is God. The main hero of the Bible is God. The main focus of the Bible is God. The main savior of the Bible, the one who gets all the glory in the Bible, is God. Genesis is a wonderful place to remind us of this truth. Genesis 1 verse 1 starts with, In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. Right from the start, we see God acting, his power, his creativity. And right from the start, we see that God is in a completely separate position than us. God is the creator, and we are the creation. He stands in a completely unique category as the only thing that is eternal, the only thing that is unmade. And as the creator, God acts as the lawgiver and judge. Genesis 2 shows us God giving a command to Adam, and Genesis 3 shows God judging Adam for breaking that command. And God's right to make laws and judge others is continually seen throughout the rest of Genesis. With Cain and Abel, with Noah and the flood, with the Tower of, of Babel, with Sodom and Gomorrah, and in many other circumstances. God is the ultimate authority and ruler throughout the book of Genesis. God is also the ultimate savior throughout Genesis. It is not Adam who brings us salvation. It's not Abraham. It's not Isaac. God is the one who promises the future deliverer. He is the one who shows mercy to Adam, Eve, and Cain. He is the one who saves Noah and his family from the flood. He is the one who delivers Lot and his daughters from destruction. He is the one who protects and delivers Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob's 12 sons. God, not man, is the Savior in Genesis. And one that we often sort of forget about is that God is the only one who survives throughout the entire book. One of the most obvious things in Genesis is that everybody keeps dying. You look in the very first chapters and you see this long genealogy and person dies, another person dies, another person dies, another person dies. 2,000 years around have passed by the end of the book of Genesis and the majority of the characters are dead. And the few characters that are left, we know, die at the very beginning of Exodus. But through it all, God is still alive. He is the only one who's interacted with everyone. He is the only one who's been a part of every story. He is the one who's been the center of every story. 
The book of Genesis and the whole Bible is a book about God. That's something that, that humbles us, takes away our pride, takes away our arrogance. But it's also something that gives us great hope. Because if we really think about it, we think about ourselves, we think about all of our, our weaknesses, our failures, our problems, our limitations. We're the point of all existence. We're in trouble, big trouble. There is no purpose. There is no peace. There's no hope. But if we have an awesome, all-powerful, perfect, holy, just, loving, gracious, merciful God, and everything is about Him, then we can have hope. Then we can have assurance. Then we can live with joy and have comfort. The Bible is a book that is about God. And Genesis shows us that in crystal clear colors. And I am excited to jump into that in the weeks to come. Lord God, we thank you so much that everything is about you. We thank you, God, that you, you are perfect, that you are great, that you are mighty, and that you have made everything for your glory. We know that that is good and right, but that is also something that, that brings hope to us. And I ask God that as we move through this week that we would remember the great storyline of the Bible. That we would remember that our faith is not about doing enough good to make it into paradise, but it is about that we have failed, but that you in your graciousness, in your love, and for your glory have made a way of salvation and the whole Bible displays that way of salvation. I ask God that as we jump into the book of Genesis in the weeks ahead, that we would see clearly the doctrine that is laid out there, that we would see the foundation that you, you put in place, that you set everything up in a beautiful and perfect way, and that we would be excited, excited to learn more about you and excited because we know that when we learn more about you, when we focus on you, our lives will be changed. We thank you for Christ, and in his name we pray. Amen.